welcome to the Something About Science podcast. My name is Megan from Azo Nano, and I'm joined by Skylar from Azon and Danielle from News Medical. We'll be bringing you a roundup of the latest research that is piquing our interest on our set of specific sites. This week's going to be a little bit different than how we normally do it. So on the 8th of March, it will be International Women's Day, which for all of you who don't know, it is an annual day that's basically set out to both celebrate and spread awareness of all the women in our lives and all the women that have been and all the women that will be to come. And as, you know, science editors, we thought we would combine the two and focus on women in science, talk a little bit about our personal experiences through our interest in science, any women who have inspired us and throughout our careers as science editors, sort of the most inspiring um, and affecting interviews we've done with women in science as well. Our chance to be a bit narcissistic and talk about ourselves for a bit. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Self-indulge and enjoy the sound of our own voices. I suppose then the first question that I'm going to pose to my um, co-host here is how did your I suppose relationship with science start? I actually think mine and yours might be quite similar in the fact that we're both from the northwest and we've got um, Jodrell Bank on our doorstep and it's a place that I would visit quite a lot as a kid and I think all children are interested in probably like three areas in common of science and that's space um, which is really cool paleontology so dinosaurs and um, zoology so just animals as well so I'd say my intro into science was through those through visiting zoos visiting museums visiting Jodrell Bank I remember they would do these things where you would go into a room and it's basically like a cinema room and you'd take a tour of the solar system and uh, in this like on this big screen and it's really cool and obviously uh, in all those aforementioned places the gift shop is always a particular <laughs> highlight as a child and you could buy like um, science kits like mm-hmm. that you would do at home and I also had a keen interest in geology as well when I was little like I used to collect rocks yeah. and um, I had when my um, family members or I went on holiday they were sort of um, especially to sort of like um, more warmer tropical volcanic regions they would sort of bring me back like volcanic rocks Mm-hmm. and that were all like labeled for the actual rocks they were and that was probably yeah they were probably my interest as a, as a child yeah as a kid if you ask anyone in my family like any adult in my family what I wanted to do when I was a kid my number one answer would always be a ballerina on the moon I was always <laughs> obsessed with space always but then I also had like a real ballet phase I was terrible at it awful but anyway I was also always really into space but did you guys also have those books and they had like maybe like a gemstone in the middle and it'll be like about ancient Egypt but then they also had ones about producer Amory Amy is nodding in the background what were the other ones there was definitely a dinosaur one and there was a space one as well on that I've throwback and he would have like a cd-rom in them as well that like yes, you could put in your yes. computer and it would be some sort of or like play it in the car yeah. like an audio thing and then we also had this massive encyclopedia it was like everything you should know about science and it was aimed at kids but it actually had really interesting stuff in there and it was like a massive book and I'd like sit on the floor and like go through it all I think yeah just exposure to all those things as a kid is so important to I don't know inspiring you and making you think about the world no, 100% agree. And I think for me, it's definitely kind of like very similar. So in terms of like external exposure of like going places, 
rather than John Rule Bank, for me it was Liverpool's Natural History Museum. So like it's a really great museum and I always remember going there either with like family members or even with friends all throughout high school and on school trips and the museum itself has I think about six floors ranging from again more kind of like archaeology to natural history and obviously space on the top floor. So that was always like really really fun I've got very fond memories of going there and I think as well I see I didn't have this magazine that you guys are speaking of I have like National Geographic's kids magazine so Nat Geo Kids that for me was like the magazine I remember reading when I was growing up and I my dad always used still does as well get the National Geographic's and we have like at our house a full shelf of them and I remember even when I was younger just like picking out a random one and like scrolling through it and looking through and not understanding half of what was being said but just still kind of like absorbing all of that kind of information there. Did you guys ever go to the Natural History Museum in London? I've only been once and when I was in college I really want to go back. It's enormous but I have this memory and when I went back recently it wasn't there so I don't know if I've just had a dream about this and imagined it but I've said it to several people and they also remember but do you remember there used to be this bit where you would like walk through a womb no sorry no. <laughs> Nobody, it's already not everyone's here. shaking their heads but um, uh, maybe I just had a dream about it what does it mean <laughs> it just felt like there was like a, a tunnel different to the escalator that goes into the yeah. planet mm-hmm. like a tunnel that would like take you through like a, a womb like a woman's womb that is really cool but uh yeah I always say that my my example of that with the natural history museum and I actually want to go back to the natural Hi- history museum in a bit but is the I think it's on the top floor there's the Japanese supermarket where it's yes. like it, it there's like an earthquake and you're in a Japanese supermarket that's quite cool so it's, and it as simulates. a kid you think it's so intense yeah and then I went back recently and I was like I went with a couple of people who'd not been to the museum before and I was like guys prepare yourself <laughs> for this it's so intense everything goes flying off the shelves you're really rocked off your feet like hold on <laughs> and then it started it's just like the smallest little vibration <laughs> It was so underwhelming. I felt so disappointed it ruined my trip. That's so funny. That's so funny. But just wondering, as we all got older, how did our sort of relationships with science change and how, particularly for Megan and I, but also we'll hear about Skylar's different journey in a bit, how when we came to that age where we had to start thinking about our careers, what inspired us to, as women, pursue a career and further education within the sciences? I think I'll start off with this one um, because it was a journey. Like it definitely was a journey for me. I kind of am first gen, so, you know, my parents didn't go to university. I didn't have any kind of role models in STEM that were close to me growing up. So I think for me, I always consider like my education and I suppose now like my relationship with, you know, science and broader STEM to be like quite personal and quite self-motivated. So as you kind of like go through high school I remember thinking okay well do I kind of want to study physics do I want to study maths do I want to go into engineering like I really didn't know like where I wanted to go and as you get into kind of college and obviously things like this become a little bit more serious and timelines become a little bit shorter it's kind of funny but I always remember thinking about okay well what interests me the most like what do I really like and <laughs> it sounds really stupid now but I remember like when I was a kid reading the Nat Geo Kids magazine and there was like one little fact that has always really stuck with me and it was the day that I found out that dinosaurs and that group later obviously evolved to the birds and the chickens that we have today and it was the chickens for me that stuck out 
And I thought, well, that's always stuck with me and that's always something that's been very interesting. And I was like, well, you know, evolution is always, I found like very, very fascinating. So I decided that I would study genetics and see kind of where it went from there. So I think, yeah, it's quite a simple story really. But for me, it was just something that always had this kind of fascination and wonder and this small thing that stuck with me. But I just found it so interesting. And I think, you know, if I find it interesting still to this day, why not pursue it? Why not follow a career in it? And obviously as well, being a woman, it just felt very important to just follow something because I wanted to do it, not because of like whether society thought I should do something else, you know. It was just something that I think, you know, I felt very strongly about doing. I can completely relate to pretty much everything you said there, especially at the beginning where you said you were, first, you know, first gen. I'm, I'm exactly the same. Neither of my parents went to university and... I don't know anyone who works remotely near the sciences. So I completely agree. I think for me, going back to the Natural History Museum, I'd always always had that general interest in science. And it was a trip to London when I was 15. And visiting the Natural History Museum, going to the gift shop, <laughs> buying a book called Life's Greatest Secret, The Race to Crack the Genetic Code by Matthew Cobb, and reading that in its entirety, and reading about the history of genetics from Mendel to now that really inspired me. I just was so intrigued and taken in by this story that he put forward of the history of genetics that I just wanted to know more. And from that point on, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know whether I wanted to work in a lab or, or other things. I just knew that I felt really passionately about this thing and that things would work out. And I was inspired by um because like we've said we didn't know anyone personally who worked for the sciences I was really inspired by a few women who were mentioned in that book one such scientist that I came across in Matthew Cobb's book was Barbara McClintock who won the 1983 Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine and um, for her work on maize and chromosomes uh, in particular her work on uh, transposition as of 2022, she remains the only woman to have ever received the, uh, the Nobel Prize unshared because often it'll be given to like two people. She got given it singularly and she did work in like loads of areas, like loads of like things that are just given now in genetics, such as recombination, the roles of telomeres and centromeres and uh, transposition, which is the bit that really interests me. So that was something that sort of like carried me through to uni, I'd say. Okay, so I'm also the first person in my family to graduate, so we're three for three on that. But unlike you guys, I didn't do, or did I, science at uni. I think... It's a social science, isn't it? I'll get into that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, during school, I always enjoyed, you know, traditional sciences. I carried it through to, I did the IB, the International Baccalaureate, rather than A-levels. But I think I always steered more towards the subjective, things that were more open to interpretation. And I'm also a very indecisive person. I think everything fascinates me so much. I found it really hard to land on one thing to study at uni. For a while, I was going to do law for, for a while. And then literally at the last minute, I found anthropology. And the whole reason I chose it basically was, obviously, I found the subject interesting, but it's so broad in what you can look at. I was like, oh, great. I don't have to decide what I want to do for another three years <laughs> or four years. I guess for, for listeners who might not know what it is, it's basically the study of human culture, but it's also very evidence-based on fieldwork. I kind of just chose it because it 
gave me so many avenues to stay in science, not stay in science, whatever I wanted to do. But forgive me if I go on a bit of a tangent, but I did actually think that anthropology was such a good vehicle to speak about science because as you said earlier, Megan, you were like a social science. <laughs> I've never really classified my degree as scientific because it's such a big debate in the field. In my final year, I had to write an essay, is anthropology an art or a science? Which is personally, I actually think no. I don't think it should be classified as a social science. And I don't think it should be like a, a Bachelor of Social Sciences, which is maybe controversial, but I think it comes down to my own relationship with it in that basically like, I think anthropological theory is fantastic. And I also think it's something that should be taught in schools. If you teach kids at an early age concepts like cultural relativism, it's going to create such a more empathetic and open population to people other than yourself. I think just by being introduced to those theories at a young age, and I think anthropological theory is absolutely fascinating. And I would encourage everyone to read up on it because it is brilliant. And so, as I said, broad ranging, but practically, Anthropologists apply this theory through ethnography, which is basically where you go out into the field and it can be a placement of months to years to decades, basically as long as you think is necessary. And an ethnography is this text, which is basically an unregulated storytelling experience of what you've learned about this culture. And the fact that it's kind of unregulated and there's no clear way about how you should write an ethnography is what makes it so engaging because you basically are listening to people talk about their experiences, sometimes decades long experiences in this community. And it's such like a can of worms when it comes to whether it should be science or not, because effectively it's storytelling inspired by truth. And Often these ethnographies are kind of giving the weight of scientific texts, but the very foundation of anthropological theory is relativity and the idea that you'll never really know what anyone else is experiencing. We shouldn't like try to assume that we know best than anyone else. Anthropology is really in the process of like redefining itself in the modern world. Its past is so complicated. It's basically its roots are so colonial. It's the basis for much of the race science and, you know, racist thinking that so much of our laws and prejudices have been based on for the last more than a century. And it's been moving, well, trying to move away from that and come to terms with that and be responsible that, for that for a very long time. But I think even more than that, I think it needs to ask itself, can it still remove itself from that history whilst also kind of be performing ethnography in communities that, that aren't your own? So my answer to the essay was basically that it should not be a science. Anthropology is too subjective to ever be a science, effectively. That's such a gross oversimplification, but I think that's the reason that I don't class my background as science. I think I've had proximity to science. I did an internship in medical anthropology and how opioid addiction and incarceration interrelated in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, and that was fascinating. So I've always had this kind of interest and I've kind of been next to science for a long time, but I don't think it was really until I started working with Azo Network that I was really launched into more empirical science. So, yeah. I suppose then my question might be, well, how does it now feel? Because, you know, I would class you as a woman in science now mm. because you are, you're sharing science stories, you're engaging with researchers and engineers all across the field. Like, how has your experience say, with anthropology and coming to that conclusion has it I suppose changed like your outlook on science or how you approach things like how do you now see yourself and your relationship with science I think 
it's been interesting and really enlightening to move into science through my job and to kind of use that lens to look back on my degree because it was really disenchanting kind of coming to this realization at the end of my degree that maybe I didn't believe in the practical applications of it and ultimately that's why I didn't pursue it at a master's level I just wasn't sure that I believed in where to take it from there but I do think there's immense value that anthropologists have in different fields the way that we can apply our theory to disciplines like the scientific ones that we discuss on this podcast or that we have at Azo Network and everything from informing science to policy to everything else. I'm still incredibly grateful for my science background and I, I still think that some of the research that is being produced is amazing. I mean, that research that I interned for does incredible work and it's a tricky one. I like being a woman in science. It's it's tricky considering at what point my scientific career started. But yeah, that was a good question, Megan. <laughs> Just goes to show that not everyone's journey is the same and not, not everyone takes that classic route of college, university, job, all within the sciences is that there's transferable skills, mm -hmm. especially in our, in our roles as, as, as editors. And yeah, everyone's different. I think kind of echoing what Danielle said there is a it is a great example of science and, and STEM it's very flexible and I think one thing that people kind of think and you know I had the same like view when I was younger is that okay I have one path and I have to follow it which is not true and later on in kind of like this episode you'll you'll hear from an interview that I conducted with Megan Christian who is just been selected as an astronaut in reserve for the European Space Agency but her journey there wasn't linear you know so Megan's actually got a background in um, I believe it's chemical engineering and has had a relationship with nanotechnology and graphene and I think you know one of the questions I know that um, or the talking points we'll be having later is like what interviews have inspired us and I think this one is definitely one I will remember for a while it's just proving that point of like you know you can have something that you've wanted to do for a long time or has been in the back of your mind for a long time or even you know there's a career that you find interesting and you don't have to think that just because you did one thing for so long you can't move your way into it like I feel like especially now how we are and how the world is everything is so fluid like you shouldn't ever feel like you couldn't pursue a career in something just because you originally started off doing something else I mean both myself and Danielle you know we started off with a degree that for most people you'd expect to be in the lab conducting research and you know I imagine like Danielle will feel the same sometimes like we miss it or sometimes I miss the feeling of it even though <laughs> I remember cell culture making me want to cry sometimes I don't miss experiments going wrong <laughs> no we definitely do not miss that but you know you can still be a part of a community even if you didn't start there or even if you didn't stick to the stereotype in the community yeah, I think it's all about learning about the different areas of science that are, that are out there. I know particularly for me, growing up, this side of science, science communication, definitely wasn't, ironically enough, well communicated. Only going to university and actually having a coursework project on science communication did I even realise that it's a thing. Like, it, yeah, it's just not very well publicised. It's a lot of inroads into a scientific career or science communication that you maybe wouldn't think about and you maybe wouldn't think were for you. So yeah, I think I'd echo what you said and also say if you have any interests, like obviously listeners, not you two, but <laughs> any interest in like a scientific field, definitely look what opportunities are there for you because I think there's immense value from 
people with different backgrounds especially different degrees and different experiences contributing to I guess something like this and something like the company we have I think one thing I've learned is that if you're passionate about something that passion will always come across I don't think you can fake enthusiasm and if you have enthusiasm and passion for a subject such as the sciences you can't go wrong that you'll you'll find a way to it it's so simple but it's so pure it's so it's something that will carry you like throughout your life is I always think it's people who have a passion for say music or people who have a passion for art it's always something that's really celebrated and really encouraged and I think the same encouragement should be applied for people who say have a passion or an interest in the sciences or in engineering and it's the same feeling it's the same love for something it's the same love for knowledge. I think now we're going to talk about instances that we've had where we've left an interview conducted with a woman in science where we've left it feeling really inspired and infused because of the work that they've done and that we've been speaking about and I thought I'd kick off by saying that one of my interviews that I conducted last year which was part of News Medical's World Immunisation Week coverage was one such interview that really inspired me. I spoke to Dr. Ruan Barnabas about the Kenshi study, which actually found that a single-dose human papillomavirus vaccination was effective in preventing incident-persistent oncogenic HPV infection. The study was conducted in Kenya as well, and throughout the interview when she was telling me about the study, it just brought up how important it was given the global health burden of cervical cancer, but also the way cervical cancer and other diseases affecting specifically women impacts those women that are in developing countries. And it was just a really inspiring piece of research that sort of, I left the interview feeling really hopeful and really happy that this work was being done and that we were able to communicate it. So that's my example. Wait, before I do my interview... I also just wanted to say at the start I said that neither of my parents had a degree but a couple of years ago my mum actually went back to studying oh, and it cool. links back to what you were saying Megan about you know passion bringing you background to to doing what you love I'm really proud of her and she's done like amazing and seeing her kind of come back to studying later in life has been really really inspiring so I just wanted to give a shout out to my mum as well <laughs> <laughs> and I also give a shout out to my mum whose birthday is the 8th of March Oh, oh. oh, so like every year it's International <laughs> Women's icon. Day. And I'm like, yeah, I know it's International Women's Day, but it's also my mum's birthday. So <laughs> this International Women's Day, say a little Bracket, thought for Brackets Danielle's mum's birthday. <laughs> yeah, interview highlights. So this was a hard one to choose, but it was Women in Science Day, not to be confused with International Women's Day, on the 11th of February. And I did a couple interviews this year with some really inspiring women for that. And I would really recommend you guys check that out. But actually, I went all the way back to a year ago for the interview I wanted to talk about, which was with Anna Watkins, who's the director of Uncommon Alchemy. And this is a company based on her research at university that's creating a 100% bio-based alternative to leather made using seaweed as the raw material. And I think we've talked a bit about like seaweed and natural technologies in the past, but I like this interview because of its focus on these natural raw materials, green chemistry, and also adopting circular principles. But I also wanted to spotlight it in this episode because I think Anna's really inspirational in terms of being like a researcher, inventor, and business person. 
The seaweed leather she's created and is developing is biodegradable, non-toxic, and it's also highly customizable. So I think she has a background in textiles actually as well. And they're looking at using it to create commercial products. Uh, when I talked to her a year ago, she was still working on this material. I think there was some issues still with water resistance or waterproofing, which is common with a lot of alternative like kind of leathers and materials. But you can actually follow Uncommon Alchemy on Instagram or check out the interview in the show notes if you're interested. I think it's going to be one of those startups that's going to be big in the next couple of years. I love that as a vegan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> vegan leather is massive. Also, vegan leather is just plastic is it, <laughs> as well. Is it well, most of the time? Is it just plastic? A lot of the time, yeah. Oh, it's that's just plastic. so sad. Yeah. But yeah, it's a massive industry, but it does have so many limitations. So it's cool that things like this are now kind of trying to start coming in the market and compete with it it'll be interesting to see what effects sort of like 3d printing and cell printing has on vegan leather like if you can just print cells and i know we've spoken about it with meat why not with with leather as well yeah no definitely you should patent um, it <laughs> maybe <laughs> next episode danielle will announce on her <laughs> i'm retiring from this podcast i'm starting a multi-million dollar <laughs> company um aside from me like luckily one of the most inspiring interviews i've done is an interview that your listeners will be able to listen to shortly and i think i just really loved this like my own story of it really resonated with me of her basically finding this interest and this passion for space when she was younger but at the time Australia didn't have a space agency so the opportunity wasn't necessarily there for her to pursue that career path but then throughout her life and the different experiences that she's had whether it's kind of research in environments that are modeling kind of environments say in Mars and then eventually transitioning towards a career investigating um, nanomaterials like graphene and then the announcement being made of that, the European Space Agency was opening up applications to be an astronaut and her, I suppose, reconnecting with that, I suppose, childhood dream in a way. I just really liked it. And it just reminded me again of my kind of, I suppose, story, my personal memory I had spoke about earlier, you know, that page in the magazine of how, like, I just thought that was really interesting. I'm just going to go back to that. And it just really resonated with me personally. I think it was, like Skylar said, really difficult to find an interview that I think was a highlight. I've had like the wonderful pleasure of being able to speak with many women in sciences, whether it was for a world day or in general. And I think obviously it's always lovely hearing feedback of these women and these scientists being very appreciative of, of spreading awareness of it. I think that's something I always find quite rewarding. And I'm sure like Skylar can kind of empathise in this of, we work a lot with material scientists and engineers, which traditionally is a field which is not female-led. I think the United Nations reports that only 28% of engineering graduates are women. And I think for me at least, you know, even though it's not directly related with my, my scientific background, being able to kind of share stories of women in engineering and in like say material science, just, it is just um, really satisfying to be able to contribute to that and to like kind of spread awareness in that way and show that you can really pursue anything that you want to pursue regardless of what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And it's great, like you were saying, on a call or in person, when you really get to hear people's passion coming through, even if you don't have a background in it yourself, it's incredibly engaging just to hear someone speak about something they're interested in. Yeah, I don't know about anyone else, but for me, sometimes it can even make my day, like it oh, makes yeah. my work mm -hmm. day. It doesn't, it puts a little, um, what's the word? 
exactly. Spring in your so step. It, it puts a spring in your step. You feel really sort of like refreshed mm-hmm. and engaged and yeah, it just makes your day and it's always a personal highlight. It was one of those where I was like really happy that she agreed to conduct it in person because I think sometimes you can tell when it's going to be a good interview. And I hope some of our listeners can find inspiration from Megan's story. So first of all, could you please introduce yourself and your role at the European Space Agency and your journey to becoming an astronaut in reserve? My name is Megan Christian and I'm a material scientist at the National Research Council of Italy. And just in November, I was announced as part of the astronaut class for the European Space Agency. I'm a member of the Astronaut Reserve. And so this has been quite a long time in coming. I started, I was born in the UK. I grew up in Australia and then I moved to Europe to do a postdoc after my PhD. And space wasn't really in my mind at the time. But over the years, I've done a lot of kind of interesting things that have kind of pushed me in this direction. So when applications opened in, I think it was something like, March 2021, I'm like, yes, I'm definitely making making an application. And so over the next 18 months or so, I went through a whole long process of, of selections. And finally, in November, I was absolutely delighted and excited to hear that I had been selected. No, massive congratulations on, on that as well. It truly is an amazing thing to accomplish. So kind of looking at your answers, you mentioned that, you know, when you were younger, you'd been inspired on previous trips to the US and kind of that had really sparked your interest in space but at the time you were an Australian that which didn't have a space agency so kind of now looking back and thinking about how that difference is would you say that your I suppose your kind of approach to your professional ambition has changed knowing that what was something that wasn't possible now has become possible has it changed your outlook on how you kind of go about in your professional life? In a way it has, but at the same time, I've always been one to kind of grab opportunities that come up, whether they're in that direct line of where a traditional career might say that I should go or not, whether they're on that path or not. So yes, when I was young, I never thought that I would become an astronaut because as you say, uh, there was no space agency in Australia as I was growing up, it's very, very new, the Australian Space Agency, and they don't, even now, they don't have a human exploration aspect. So yeah, it just, it wasn't something that crossed my mind, although I was so excited when I went to places like the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum and the Kennedy Space Center. I still remember, I don't know, I was about 13 or 14. I still remember trying to do one of those simulators that I had to land the the space shuttle. Mm Mm-hmm. I was absolutely terrible at it. I couldn't manage. (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, I've had a bit of experience uh, on doing various things like that since then. And I I think it's something that I could learn, although the space shuttle is obviously not around any longer. But I have these really exciting memories that have kind of stuck at the back of my mind. And every now and then they they come to the fore. Same thing with Antarctica. So I guess we'll talk about that later. but, uh, But I never thought that I would actually get to go and work in Antarctica. But again, when I was young, I went to the International Antarctic Centre in Christchurch and just everything that I saw there was really exciting and inspiring. So when these opportunities came up throughout my life, I couldn't help but take them because they'd kind of been sitting there in the back of my mind since forever. 
I know what you mean. It's kind of that one little thing you have that's like driving you and you're like, oh, but if I don't do this, is it always going to haunt me? And it's so lovely to hear that you kept that excitement and you've been able to really accomplish it. And what I particularly like as well is you've gone from your background in chemical engineering to an astronaut, which is a career path that not many people would think would be possible. What advice would you give to, suppose, our listeners and young women and girls out there about, say, reaching those goals when they might not seem like there is an easy path to do it? Yeah, there is absolutely no easy path to become an astronaut. And I have to admit that there's a lot of luck involved as well because there were 22,500 people that applied and I'm sure that so many of those other people were highly qualified to do it as well. So it's not something that, that comes automatically and it's not something that you can dedicate your life to wanting to do necessarily. It can be, you know, a goal, but it shouldn't be the only thing that you want to do. What, what you need to do is find a career that you really love and do what you can to excel in that career. And at the same time, you can build up a kind of culture around you of doing things that, that might help if you ever get the chance to apply to become an astronaut. So I've always really liked to be a really well-rounded person. So I've always enjoyed doing sports, extreme sports even, and at the same time doing the handicrafts with my hands, you know, doing manual work as well. And then, as I said before, when opportunities have come up to do really even strange experiences, like my like a year in Antarctica, I took those opportunities. And so that's what I, su- I would suggest. Just take things as they come, try and follow a career that you love, but try and add some interesting things in now and then as well that might help you. But really things that that you love doing, not just because you want to become an astronaut. That's really lovely advice. And I think it's like you say, if you have a passion, it's going to drive you in the future, wherever you go. It's always good to be there rather to fulfill you than anything else. So let's talk about your time in Antarctica then. How, in one sentence, how would you summarise it if your whole experience there? In one sentence, in one sentence. <laughs> it was an absolutely amazing experience. Very, very hard on my body and my mind, but something that I will remember forever. And what are some of the, the projects that you took when you were out there? So when I went to Antarctica, I, was, I went to Concordia Station, which is an Italian and French base. And um, they have a lot of permanent observatories there. So these are experiments that have been running for a very long time. They're not experiments that I brought myself. I was there to operate them. And they were in the fields of meteorology and atmospheric physics. So, for example, I was doing the routine meteorological observations, launching the the balloon every night to, to get the weather report basically. And also that that data goes into climate modeling as well. A lot of the research that we do there is is about climate change and, and what we can learn about climate change. So I was also looking into the kind of pollution that is in the atmosphere there. Unfortunately, it's low, but if you get any kind of perturbance, if, if you see that suddenly the, the pollution rises there in such an isolated location, it's quite a good indicator to what is happening in the rest of the world. No, I, I can imagine. And um, would you kind of recommend any, I suppose, websites or any places or even say following the, the station where you're at for people to kind of, I suppose, keep up to date with? Because it's like you say, you know, climate change is 
on everyone's mind at the moment and I suppose it can be quite a good area to learn more about how it is affecting our planets in even the most isolated of places. Yeah, I think there's a lot, even on social media, there are some really good accounts to follow. So for example, of the various research stations in Antarctica, there's Concordia, which is run, as I said, by French and Italian. So there's both, a, there's a French one and there's Italian, there are Italian accounts. Um, also, there's something in every language. So there's one in, in Italian that I particularly like to follow called and they talk about astronomy, but there's also a lot of stuff about climate change as well. And even the European Space Agency, something really interesting that I like to follow on social media are the, the photos that are taken from their, their satellites, which give a really good idea of what has been happening uh, in the world over the past 20, 30 years or so. I love looking at the photos and, and the comparisons. I think they're such a good way of just showing people the impact of what is going you know of activities that are going on and anything visual is such a great way to engage people from any kind of like background yeah because it's so obvious like it's you you can you see it and it's so understandable by by everybody I think it has a really great impact no definitely so kind of moving more towards your involvement with the graphene flagship how did this involvement start and what initially sparked your interest in, in graphene research? So uh, after my PhD, which was actually on nanomaterials for hydrogen storage, so looking at fuel cell vehicles, I was looking for a postdoc in Europe because Australia is wonderful and it has some great research going on. But just for the sake of collaborations and going to conferences and so on, being somewhere like Europe or even the US, it just makes things that little bit easier. And also, I, as I was born in the UK, I was a UK citizen and at the time a European citizen. And so, yeah, I was looking for a, a postdoc in, in Europe. And I actually didn't know anything about graphene at all at the time. But I came across this project within the graphene flagship. So I started reading a bit about graphene and all its amazing properties. And I just got more and more fascinated about it and uh, decided to apply. And uh, here I am. I mean, I've been here for nearly nine years now. So, and I've been involved in the graphene flagship almost for its entire duration. Wow. I mean, I can definitely empathize with how you feel about, about graphene. I didn't know much about it until I started at ASO, looking over at ASO Nano website and a lot of the kind of research that's going on in graphene and all the different places that it can be involved in and applied to. It's amazing, really. I, I can't really think of many other materials or even instances in life sciences where you have something that can be applied to so much. Yeah, and it's not just one material. It's a whole family of materials. I mean, you start with graphene and then you go to all the kind of materials that are very similar to graphene. And then from there, you can go on to all the different 2D and layered materials. So it's really opened up a new area of research. No, definitely. So many of our readers might have actually heard of graphene, but they're probably unfamiliar with its relevancy to alternative fuels and energy storage technologies. What is it about graphene that makes it so exciting for this application? So graphene itself, by itself, is basically inert. So you can't really think about using it by itself for any kind of energy applications. But what it is, is it's a really, really good conductor. And in my particular case, what I like about it is that you can basically make it into any different shape that you like. So you can take this 2D material and make it into a 3D structure. And that means you can make it into a structure with a really high surface area. 
And so then you can add some materials that are useful, that are active for catalysis, for example, or, or electrochemistry or photoelectrochemistry. You can add materials to it. And because of its really high surface area and because of because it's such a good conductor, it can make these materials work more efficiently. So as we both know, the graphene flagship is approaching its 10th year anniversary and you've been there for eight years, I think it was you mentioned. How has your relationship with the graphene flagship changed over these years and how have you watched this space change? Well, when I started, like I said, I really didn't know anything about graphene, so I was completely new to it. And I would go to events like the Graphene Study, which is a winter school for postdocs or PhDs to really learn about it. But over time, I've kind of grown with the flagship itself. So now I'm actually a task leader of of one of the tasks in the flagship. And so I think both of us have kind of grown together. Lovely. And what are some of the projects that you've kind of currently working on and some of the highlight projects that you've previously worked on? So I've done a lot of work, as I say, into alternative energy. And so using these 3D structures of graphene in devices like batteries or supercapacitors. And now I'm kind of moving that into more of a a catalysis approach, so trying to find better ways of producing hydrogen and producing hydrogen as a fuel also directly from the sun, so by photocatalysis. So again, combining these these 3D graphene structures with some photoactive materials. And what I'm particularly trying to do at the moment is make some structures that are transparent. So graphene itself is transparent, but when you make these 3D structures, you tend to have a lot of layers and it's quite hard to make a transparent structure. But a transparent structure is what you need for these kind of photocatalytic reactions. So that's what that's one of the things I'm working on at the moment. And kind of going back to the space area, I have had a project that's still continuing, it will go until the end of the graphene flagship and perhaps beyond, into using graphene coatings on a porous material that's used in, inside devices called loop heat pipes. And these are passive cooling devices that can be used on satellites. So basically to cool down the electronic components that are on satellites. And these have to be able to work under microgravity conditions. They have to be able to work by themselves for many, many years, 10, 15 years or so. And so obviously we need to test them. And uh, so one of the highlights of my time in the graphene flagship has been testing these particular materials on parabolic flights, which means basically having these periods of, of weightlessness in which you have to check that the material is actually working under microgravity conditions. So does that mean the zero? You're doing the experiments in zero gravity then, or yes, there are thereabouts? Right. Oh, how yeah. was how was that experience? Uh, it was absolutely amazing. It's it's not something that you can describe very easily. I mean, it's a bit like what you feel when you kind of go over a hump in a roller coaster or something like that. But the thing is, it lasts for twenty two seconds at a time, and uh, so it's it's quite different. And I I remember when I was on one of the flights, the first one I did. That just to give me an idea of what was going on, because you have a bit of time to, that there are three people involved in the experiment. So one person can go off and have a bit of fun every now and then. And so in one of these times, I went off into the fun free floating area. And the person who was in charge of the flight, he picked me up during one of the microgravity phases and spun me around. It, 
with my eyes closed. And then at some point he asked me to open my eye. Well, he asked me where I thought I was. And I said, okay, well, you've put me, you've put me back on the floor, right? He said, no, no, open your eyes. And he had put me on the ceiling. So that just gives you an idea of how much you kind of lose any perspective. Mm-hmm. That's uh, so, so yeah, cool. That's really exciting. <laughs> I suppose that's a, it's a good thing to bring out at a party. A fun fact is that I have walked on the ceiling. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's really cool. So kind of bringing back to um, the project you're discussing about satellites, I wouldn't have thought that I suppose overheating was a problem with satellites because space is cold, right? The space is cold, but you have actually quite a difficult energy balance to deal with. So when they're completely exposed to the sun, they don't have as much atmosphere as we do down here on Earth. So they're actually really exposed to a lot of heat. And then when they're not exposed to the sun, they're really, really cold. So you need some kind of heat management device on board. That's quite interesting, actually. So as you know, this year, we're seems to be approaching the International Day of Women and Girls in Science. And the United Nations is placing a special focus on the work women are doing in relation to reaching these goals. What role can nanomaterials help to play in helping to address these goals and create new solutions? Yeah, I think nanomaterials uh, have such a strong potential And I think we only know a very, very small part of that potential. But basically the idea is, right, that if you take your material down to the nanoscale, you change its properties and the energy balances change, the thermodynamics and kinetics change. So you you can do some really interesting things. And although the field is, you know, it's, it's not young, I think we're still learning a lot and so, for example, the, the applications that, I, that I've been talking about are really promising in terms of clean energy. And the Graphene flagship, for example, has two of its work packages dedicated to clean energy. And I think the, the other SDG that you mentioned is about innovation and infrastructure. All of the work packages in the, in the Graphene flagship are kind of heading towards that. They, they have that in mind. And this isn't just the case with graphene, but I would say with all nanometries and all materials, I think really it's what we're aiming for in, uh, at least in research, in academia. And I would say most industry is now trying to head in that direction as well. And what more do you think, I suppose, researchers or groups or organisations could do to actually encourage career paths in, I suppose, nanotechnology and material science? Do you think that, I suppose, there are specific actions that could be taken to help encourage both women and girls, but also everyone to join this field? Yeah, I think it's all all about awareness. I think when I was in high school, I didn't really hear anything about nanotechnology. I mean, this this kind of goes with the fashion, right? So I did hear about things like biotechnology, which were very fashionable at the time. But I, I didn't I didn't even know that I could have done a degree in nanotechnology. Maybe I would have chosen that. Maybe I, I wouldn't have. I think I'm probably better off having a, a well-rounded, uh, a more kind of broad degree than, and then specializing afterwards. But yeah, I think I think it's about awareness in high schools especially in terms of getting more women involved I think we need to start early I think we need to remind everybody that girls can play with whatever they want to play with they can code if they want to like it's there really shouldn't be any difference between the toys that children get we shouldn't be marketing particular 
toys to girls or boys because everybody can do everything. And I think that will become just standard in the future. But for the moment, it's the responsibility of women uh, who are scientists or engineers to show that they are in that field, that they're enjoying what they're doing, that they're successful, that there shouldn't be any requirement to show themselves to be better than men or even on the same level as men because we are. It's just how it is. Everybody can do everything. No, definitely. It's hopefully one day in the future, the word scientist will be completely non-gendered and it will neither be like a girl or a woman or a man. You're just a scientist. So, for example, in this class of this class of astronauts, there are 17 of us and almost half are women. And that does get a, a fair bit of a reasonable amount of airtime. But I'm hoping that by the next election, it won't even matter. Like, it, it won't matter how many men or women there are. It's just astronauts. And the same in science and engineers. We're just scientists. We're just engineers. It's You're not a male engineer or a female engineer. You're an engineer. No, definitely. And... Um- on that note, is there anything you'd like to say to our listeners, whether it's words of encouragement or even just to stay in touch with your career and your activities in the future? Yeah, I, I just think, like I was saying before, look out for those little opportunities that come up that might not be on your direct career path, but, but that might take you somewhere really interesting, that might give you a different perspective on life. And this different perspective on life might give you some idea to solve some of the problems that we're facing at the moment. And, well, if you do want to follow me, I'm astro underscore Megan on Twitter and Instagram, so you can follow me. (laughs) Who's in the name? Brilliant. (laughs) If you have any women in science who particularly inspire you or you yourself are a woman in science, feel free to comment on our social media platforms or give us a review and let us know what you thought of our stories and tell us more about your story too thank you for listening